This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. When you love someone, like you truly care for them, you want what's best for them, don't you? I mean, that's true of parents with their children. That's true of teachers with students. That's true of friends and family. That's true of neighbors and coworkers. And when someone you love, someone you care for is in trouble... Right? You don't just sit back and watch. You don't remain silent. No, you, you, you speak up, don't you? You warn them of the danger they're in. You, you, you go after them. You go after them like a parent chasing after your child, chasing a ball out in the middle of a busy street. You don't just sit back and watch. But that's also true of pastors with the church that's been entrusted to your care, and that's true of each other within the church. Because, see, if we are truly family, as we've been talking about over the course of this series, then we can't just sit back and watch those that we love, our brothers and sisters in Christ, head down a path that's ultimately going to destroy their life and those around them. Instead, we speak up. We speak truth always in love. And while those words at times may hurt to hear when spoken in love, they're never meant to harm, they're only ever meant to help. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia that we're looking at in our series, What Makes Us Family. He was letting these churches that he planted, these people that he loved, know the danger that they were in. Because see, as we've seen, these, these, this group of Jewish Christians came in after Paul had left. And they came in questioning this gospel of grace that Paul had preached, that we are accepted by God and included in his family by, by nothing other than faith in Jesus, right? Our faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us family, nothing more, nothing less. And what these people came in saying is like, nah, that ain't actually true. Faith is necessary, but faith is not sufficient. It is not enough. There's more you need to do. And so they began leading them down this path of, of legalism, of nomism requiring adherence to these additional rules and adopting these additional cultural customs in order to be accepted. And so Paul, he, he wrote them, reminding them of what we saw at the end of chapter 2, that a person is not justified, right? We are not accepted by God. We are not included in his family by works of the law and what we do, but through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. He's warning them of this destructive nature of legalism. And this morning's passage is a little bit different than the last few. Right? He spent the middle part of this uh, letter in chapters 3 and 4 supporting this, this claim that he made at the end of chapter 2 with evidence, right? much like a, an attorney in a courtroom. And we've been reflecting on our story of faith, uh, faith in the Old Testament, our misunderstanding of the Mosaic Law, and last week we were reflecting on our union in Christ. But now this, this tone that has been building, it softens. And the, the pace that has been quickening, it, it slows, and it's almost as if Paul exhales before entering into this section of the letter. And instead of an attorney presenting theological evidence in a courtroom, he is simply a pastor speaking from his heart. Because see, this morning's passage, it is, it is a passionate plea from a loving pastor to people that he loved, reflecting on the destructive nature of legalism. That's the title of our sermon this morning, reflecting on the destructive nature of legalism. And he's going to show us how this, this doesn't lead us to Christ. No, instead it leads us further and further away from God. 
And he's going to do this by showing, I think, four devastating and destructive effects of legalism that were not only impacting the church in Galatia 2,000 years ago today, but I think very much continue to impact the church today. And so the first thing we're going to see, number one, is this. It's that the destructive nature of legalism, it destroys our intimacy with God. Right? It destroys our intimacy with God. And he, he begins by reflecting on their, their life as pagans prior to their faith in Jesus. Look down here with me, Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 8 and 9. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or, or rather be known by God, he, um, again, he's reflecting on their life as pagans. Prior to knowing God, these Gentiles, these, these former pagans, they worship the, the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses like Zeus. And, and what we know from other parts of Scripture is like these weren't actually gods. They weren't actually beings sitting at the top of Mount Olympus. Now, Paul says in, in his letter to the Corinthians that what pagans sacrifice he says they don't actually offer to gods, but they offer to demons, he says. And he, he's, he's warning them of this demonic influence at work in their pagan worship that enslaved them as their entire lives were, were centered around appeasing their gods, right? Trying to figure out how to keep them happy, like trying to keep a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old happy. It's almost impossible, it feels like sometimes, doesn't it? And all the parents said, Amen. That's what they were trying to do. They're trying to keep the gods happy. They're trying to gain their favor to impress them, to get their attention. But that was then, and this is now. Because now, he says, you have come to know God. We're not left wondering who God is, are we? Because he's revealed himself to us so that we can know him in two ways. He's revealed himself through the, the written word of Scripture, right? Through the pages of Scripture written in this beautiful dance between the human mind and the Holy Spirit, revealing the very nature and character of God, of, of who it is that he is, of what it is that he's done and what it is that he's promised to do. But not only that, it, it reveals who we are in relation to God, how we relate to God and his love for us. And so he's revealed himself through the written word of Scripture, but he's also revealed himself through the living word of his son, Jesus Christ. Right on the, on the night before he was crucified, he was, he was sharing a, a final meal together with the disciples in the upper room. And Philip, one of the disciples, he asked Jesus, like, show us the Father. This, this Father that you've been talking about, show us him. Let, let, we want to see him. We, we'd really love to meet him. Like, Jesus, you're big on meeting someone new to you. We'd like to meet this Father you speak of. And Jesus says to him, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because see, Jesus, he was the word at the beginning, with God, as God. But then as we sang this morning, he, he came down to us as one of us taking on human form and dwelt among us, and he has made him known. Like, yeah, that's fine. That was 2,000 years ago. Now we got the internet, right? You can get to know pretty much anyone. You can, you can get to know your favorite celebrity. Right, just watching their movies, reading interviews, following them on Instagram. You can get to know your favorite team or athlete, watching their games, reading analysis, looking up their stats. We get to know them, and we, we become experts, we think. And, and especially this time of year, there's a, a seasonal uh, madness that sets in in the month of March. Some of you may have caught it. Those of you that are like, the Illinois game starts at 1110, Pastor Ash, please be done by then. I'm not going to call you out by name, AJ. 
you're not the only Illinois fan here either. I'm just a bitter Iowa fan. But no, we become experts in college basketball right now because we, we think we got these brackets all figured out, right? We got a perfect bracket. And uh, I even thought, I'm going to get choked up. I thought this was the year that my beloved Iowa Hawkeyes were going to make the Final Four. We won the Big Ten Tournament. We took you down, Purdue. And uh, we thought this was the year the Murray brothers were going to do it. Um, and they lost in the first round on Thursday. And so the NCAA Tournament is effectively dead to me now. And, uh, and I'm not the only one, because, you know, the, over 20 million brackets were submitted over the four major bracket sites, ESPN, Yahoo, CBS, the NCAA tournament. And uh, after Thursday's, not just the first round, but the first day of games in the first round, there were only 192 perfect brackets after the first day over, of over 20 million brackets. And here's what that means. Here's why this is personal to me. 192 people picked New Mexico State to win. Right? Good with that. I get it. You're two of them. <laughs> but here's something. Uh, not only that, 192 people uh, picked the St. Peter's Peacocks from Jersey City. A, a team, let's be honest, nobody outside of Jersey City has ever heard of the Peacocks. 192 people picked them to beat Perennial Power Kentucky. Okay? And not only that, now they're in the Sweet 16. Did you know, they didn't even have a blue check mark in Twitter before they won that game. Man. But here's what makes it personal. Okay? 192 people picked my beloved Iowa Hawkeyes to lose in the first round. I think we need to talk about that. I'm not the expert, I guess. But knowing God isn't anything like that. It's not about knowing more about him. It's about knowing him more. Right? Knowing God is relational, not informational. Right? We are invited into this intimate relationship to know God, but not only that, to be known by God. By a God who, Paul says, set us apart before we were born. Who formed your inward parts, who knit you together in your mother's womb. Who knows you down to the, the most detail that, and that he has numbered the hairs on your head. He, he knows everything about you. He knows those things that you have kept hidden, even those things that you've kept hidden from yourself. Right? God knows you better than you know yourself. I think I, we're drawn to that, aren't we? We're drawn to that idea of that intimacy with God. We want that, but it always seems so hard to find, doesn't it? It seems so hard to find. It feels like we're find, trying to find Bigfoot out there. It feels like we're chasing unicorns out there. And we start to wonder, maybe it doesn't exist. I think sometimes we overcomplicate things, don't we? A couple times. I think here's one where we do. Because see, while in some sense our relationship with God is unlike any other relationship, it is also much like every other relationship. And it's like every other relationship in that intimacy involves investment, doesn't it? Right? Intimacy involves investment. It involves investment of our time, and it involves investment of ourselves, just like any other relationship. Right? Intimacy in a relationship, it takes time to develop, getting to know each other, which then requires vulnerability, investing ourselves in that relationship. And the same is true in our relationship with God. And so I want to pause for a moment. And I want you to think to yourself, how, how's that going? When was the last time that you actually set aside time to be with God? 
not doing, 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 but to just simply be with him, to sit in silence in his presence, to feel his arms wrapped around you, to hear his voice speaking to you through his word, sharing what is on your heart through prayer, things that he already knows but still wants us to bring to him. God has welcomed you. God has accepted you. He has included you in his family. And what is so beautiful, it is, it is not through anything you've done, but ever, through everything that Christ has done for you. Not through your works, but through his perfect work on the cross. And that means that in spite of our sin, in spite of our failings, we are no longer enemies of God, but his adopted, beloved, chosen children. Amen? We are no longer strangers in this room. Even if we just met each other this morning, we are not strangers. No, we are brothers and sisters. We are family. Intimacy involves an investment. And he goes on to say in verse 9, he says, how, how then can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want, whose slaves you want to be once more? It's like you observe days and months and seasons and years. And he's like, why would you ever give up this freedom that you have in Christ and go back to slavery? It's sort of like, mom ever put you in timeout? Yeah. You don't have to nod your head yes. We all did. We got put in some kind of timeout. And then when your mom says, okay, time's up, you can go play now. Did you ever like start to get up from that chair in the corner or wherever your timeout was? Be like, you know what? No, I'm going to go back and I'm going to stay in the corner some more. Like we don't do that, do we? And, you know, that's exactly what Israel did. That's exactly what Israel did after God rescued them from slavery, after he liberated them from Egypt, and whenever they were out wandering in the wilderness, whenever things didn't go the way they wanted, they wanted to return. When they got hungry in Exodus 16, out in the middle of the desert, no drive-throughs anywhere, right? They're like, you know what? When we were slaves, at least we had food. God, you just brought us out here to starve us to death. Numbers 14, after the spot, they sent spies into the promised land, and they came back, and they're like, guys, you're never going to believe this. We found Bigfoot. Uh, no, really, they came back saying that the land was filled with giants. And um, they're like, yeah, that doesn't sound great. We don't want to go fight giants. Let's go back to slavery. And they're like, anybody here want to be our leader and take us back to slavery? Somebody? Like, why would you do that? It's because the relationship with God was transactional rather than relational, right? It was based on what they thought God might do for them. And God wasn't doing what they wanted, when they wanted, the way that they wanted. And so they didn't trust God. They didn't trust his promises. And I think we end up much like Israel wandering in the wilderness there. Like we're skeptical of God sometimes, aren't we? We're skeptical. We, we, we doubt God's promises. We're like they just sound too good to be true. He didn't actually mean that. We're skeptical, but we're also incredibly insecure, aren't we? And we, like, we know what we've done. We, we know how vile our sin against God is. We know that in our heart. And so what we do when we bring our skepticism and our insecurity together, we make backup plans to the backup plans to the backup plans in case God's plan fails, don't we? Just in case this whole Jesus thing isn't quite enough, I'm going to do these other things as well. Because what we think is like, there's got to be a limit to his love, Right? There's got to be a limit. There's got to be some kind of expiration date on his mercy. There's got to be some kind of statute of limitations on his grace. There's got to be more that I have to do. 
And if I, if I stray too far for too long, we think it's on me to find my way back to God. And so when these Jewish Christians came in to Galatia telling these Gentile Christians that they, they needed to become more Jewish in order to be accepted by God, in order to be welcomed as sons of Abraham, right? Adhering to the Mosaic law, adopting Jewish culture, including observing their holy days, all it did was kind of confirm those suspicions that were bubbling under the surface. And what Paul says is that this adherence to legalism Making it the cross and it's no different than your pagan worship. You're going back to the same thing because both of them rely on you making yourself acceptable to whatever deity it is you're worshiping. It's up to you to make your way back to them. And what he, what he says later on in chapter 5 is that by doing that, you have actually severed yourself from Christ. There is no longer union with Christ. You have severed yourself. Not only that, he said back in chapter 2, remember that this nullifies the grace of God. It, it puts a big void and null stamp on it. And you live as though Christ died for no reason. And he says in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. May. We're not there yet. But he sees the trajectory that they're heading. And his point here is that adding to the cross, adopting this mindset of legalism, uh, of God's acceptance by what you do, it puts you all the way back to where you started from. You might as well be pagans again. It might as well have been that I never came and preached to you because it didn't do any good. Because adding to the cross negates the cross. Does that make sense? When we add to the cross, it negates the cross. It is not Jesus and it is what, folks? It's just Jesus, isn't it? And he says in verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What Paul's saying here is like, I was born a Jew. I was born a biological son of Abraham. I was circumcised. I bear the mark. And yet, none of that matters anymore, does it? Because in Christ, we saw last week, we are all, all, all sons of God. We are all his children. We are all heirs of his promise. Not through our bang of rules, not through cutting off a piece of foreskin, not through doing certain things a certain way at a certain time, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is true of the Jews. That was true of the Gentiles. That was true of anyone. That is true of everyone. You can't earn God's love. All we are called to do is receive his love and then respond to that love. Right? The gospel is not so that it is because of. But legalism, it perverts that. It reverses that, doesn't it? And so hear me, obedience, obedience to the word of God, it is a good and necessary thing, but, but hear me, we don't obey the rules so that, we don't obey so that God might love you, so that God will accept you. No, we, we obey because he already has, because he already does. It is a response. Following the church liturgical calendar, for example, celebrating the season, like the season of Lent we're currently in, Right? Don't read this and think the seasons are bad. No, the seasons are good, but we have to understand the purpose of the season. We don't follow the, the calendar to draw God closer to us. No, we do it to draw our hearts closer to God, to draw our affection and our attention to God, Right, preparing our hearts for what it is that we are going to celebrate on Good Friday and Easter, Christ's death and his resurrection. Right? We do not live for God's love. We live 
out of his love. We don't live as some scared orphan hoping that God's going to notice us and that he's going to adopt us because we look a certain way, that he's going to accept us into his home because we kept a certain set of rules when he came in to look. No, we live as his adopted and beloved children, never fearing being abandoned, never fearing being sent back to the orphanage. And that sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Tim Keller, he says, uh, Keller always says it better, doesn't he? He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance, which calms our skepticism, calms our insecurities, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. In spite of all we've done, knowing all we've done, wanting us to come to him, to have that intimacy with him. But legalism destroys all of that. Not only that, number two, what we see here is that the destructive nature of legalism, it robs our joy in serving God. Right? It robs our joy in serving God. And Paul, he begins here describing how they welcomed him, these people in Galatia, how they welcomed him when he first visited. He says, you did me no wrong. No, in fact, he says, you did the exact opposite. He says in, in verse 13 and 14, he says, you know it was because of a body ailment that I preached to the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as, as Christ Jesus. Now, we're not sure what this bodily ailment is. And what we know to be true is when we don't know for sure what something is, we want to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what it is. Um, but he doesn't say and Luke, in his account of Paul's uh, visit uh, in his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, he doesn't make any note of it there either. May have been an injury, maybe the result of persecution. May have been illness, malaria was a big thing. Uh, it could have been something chronic that he dealt with over an extended period of time, maybe even that thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. We don't know. But we don't need to know. But what we do know is that it somehow caused him to alter his travel plans, didn't it? Either altering his, his route, taking a, a detour, bringing him into the region when he hadn't planned on it, or altering his timeline, causing him to stay longer than he intended. Either way, this, this ailment, it presented him with an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. And while he was caring for them spiritually, it also presented an opportunity for them to care for him physically. You see, this was more than just a slight fever. Um, this, this condition, he says, it was a trial to them. It was, it was a lot, right? It required more significant care than just take two and call me in the morning. Uh, the Galatians, they did more than just uh, drop off some chicken soup and some saltines and some 7-Up. Like, you ever notice, like, nearly every Midwestern mother can cure just about any ailment with chicken soup, saltines, and 7-Up? To the point that, like, I can't drink 7-Up now without wanting to almost vomit because it reminds me of being sick. <laughs> I can drink Sprite. That's okay. But 7-Up, and I get there, like, identical. 7-Up, nope. It's magic. But they weren't bitter towards Paul. They didn't despise him for his condition. Instead, they welcomed him. They received him as an apostle, as a messenger of God, as though he were an angel himself, caring for him in the same way they would have cared for Jesus if he showed up. But that was then, and this is now. And so Paul asked him, he's like, what happened, guys? He 
He asks in verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Now, just to clarify, like, they didn't literally gouge their eyes out and give them to Paul. Um, Roman civilization was incredibly advanced medically, um, but there's no record of eye transplants in uh, the first century. Uh, instead, like me, uh, Paul, you ever notice I exaggerate occasionally, a little bit, a lot? Rob also noticed the other day, he's like, when you exaggerate, you always use the number eight. And then as soon as he said that, I started using 42, I guess because four times two is eight. But like me, Paul occasionally exaggerates a bit to help make his point. And what he's saying here is like, you guys went to extreme lengths to take care of me. And not just that, but you did it willingly. You did it joyfully. It gave you a sense of of satisfaction. You felt blessed knowing that by caring for Paul, they were serving God. And he's like, what changed? What happened? Legalism is what happened. Legalism robbed them of their joy that they once found in serving God and serving his family. But that's what legalism does, isn't it? Right? It turns serving into a burden rather than a blessing. It becomes obligation rather than opportunity. It becomes something you have to do, not something you get to do, because, because legalism turns serving into something that is transactional. And we measure what it is that we have done. We expect it to be reciprocal for them to serve us back. And our serving, when it's legalistic, it becomes conditional, right? There is a limit to how much you're willing to do and to how long you're willing to do it, right? Legalism, it robs that blessedness of serving God by serving others. But what Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says, for, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, we, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did, you, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? Pretty sure we'd have remembered that, Jesus. When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. By caring for Paul, they were caring for Jesus. And there's a blessedness that comes with it. It feels good. And like, that's okay. Right? Some 40 of you, you got to experience that yesterday as we served at the pantry together, launching the pantry, handing out diapers. We handed out a lot of diapers. We had little kids running up and down the stairs. Little kids and Eric uh, ran up and down the stairs carrying those diapers. I mean, we, we thought we had a whole lot of baby supplies down in that room. We don't have a whole lot of baby supplies anymore because we gave it all away. And it was really awesome. It was really awesome. And um, I, got a, I got a note from a woman uh, when we first started advertising, asking if we were going to be providing um, pull-up diapers. And I said, no, I don't think we have any. I'll go down and check. And I said, like, no, we don't have any. And then I said something. We, so, of course, we went and bought pull-up diapers. And I sent her a note saying, hey, um, we got some pull-up diapers now. And last night, she, she sent us a note on Facebook that I wanted to share with you. She said, um, I was there this morning, and I just wanted to thank you all so very much for what you gave me. It is so very much appreciated. It might not seem like a lot to you, but a little goes a long way. And it may seem like we didn't do much yesterday, but there were a handful of families that were were grateful for what we did. Um, 
heard a story of, of uh, Colette getting to pray with someone, and they're both just like standing there at the car window weeping with each other. This wasn't a means to an end. This was the end, wasn't it? Giving them the supplies that they needed, and we were able to do that. And we felt blessed because of it. If you served on a missional team this morning, man, we were blessed by your service. Man, Pastor Dale, we were exceptionally blessed by your service in brewing coffee this morning. <laughs> yep, that's exactly how you say that. <laughs> if you've delivered a meal to friend Judy Hardman over these, this past year, every, every Friday evening we're taking uh, somebody assigning up on the meal train to take dinner to them. Man, they're blessed not just by your food but by your presence. They feel connected to their church family by us going into their home and, and showing up and, and being with them. And so, man, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to participate in that blessedness, not, not out of obligation, but as, as an opportunity, not something you have to do, but something we get to do. We get to serve one another. Sign up to, when we do the announcements later, to serve at the next pantry event that's going to be in April. Sign up to serve on a missional team. Sign up to take a meal to Fred and Judy on the food train. And don't let legalism rob you of that joy, of that blessedness of serving, knowing that when we serve others, we are, in fact, serving God. But number three, the third thing we see here is that the destructive nature of legalism, it divides the family of God, right? It cuts like a knife. He says in verse 16, he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Apparently, truth has always been somewhat relative because the truth that uh, Paul preached, it, it didn't line up with the truth that these uh, Christian legalists, these outsiders came in preaching. And as a result, they were trying to get those in Galatia to view Paul uh, as their enemy. And uh, does that sound any bit familiar at all? In some cases, things, there are things that are black and white that are right and wrong, aren't there? But what we tend to do with things that are meant to be black and white is we start to view them in shades of gray. And by doing that, truth becomes relative. And when that happens, then making any claim of absolute truth is then viewed as intolerant and met with hostility. But the other is also true. Other things are meant to exist in shades of gray, aren't they? And then we are prone to view those as black and white. Some things are meant to vary, but we make them binary. We make them right and wrong. And here's the thing, if you don't line up with me, then you're not just viewed as wrong, you're viewed as my enemy, as Paul was. Guys, that's what legalism does. Adding these additional rules and regulations, making the shades of gray black and white, making the things that are to, meant to vary, making them binary, making the things left unclear in Scripture artificially clear, all typically according to a very clear, simple, and supposed clear and simple and literal reading of the text. And what that does is that enslaves it enslaves by restricting what Scripture left open and requiring what Scripture left optional. Does that make sense? And I think we've probably all experienced that at some point. We've probably even done it to ourselves. Let me say that again. Legalism enslaves by restricting what Scripture leaves open and requiring what Scripture leaves optional. And what happens then is we start to think, anyone who disagrees with me, anyone who doesn't line up with me, we start to label them. We label them as enemy, we label them as liberal, we label them as unbiblical, we label them as having a low view of scripture because it doesn't align with my view of scripture. We, we accuse them of embracing the world and we'll go so far as to accusing them of apostasy, of not even being Christian anymore because their view isn't my view. 
And the destructive nature of legalism divides what Christ has united. It divides the family of God. And what we start to notice is that some, if not most of the time, this legalism promotes the personal gain of those who impose these rigid legalist structures, don't they? Look at where he says in verse 17. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They're flattering. They're trying to win you over. They're telling you how good you are, how great you are, how awesome you are. Like yesterday you didn't know them, and now all of a sudden they're your biggest fan. They want to win you over, but their motives, what Paul says, their motives so much of the time they are selfish and they are evil. Because what they're trying to do, he says here, they're trying to alienate you. They're trying to isolate you. They're trying to separate you from those you trust, those who care for you. To help build up their platform. To help advance their cause, even to help line their pockets. And what Paul's describing here, it no longer sounds like the church of Christ. It starts to sound like the cult of man, doesn't it? But that's what legalism does. First, it divides, and then it isolates. Right? It builds factions rather than families. It divides rather than unites. And it is threatened by the diversity in the body of Christ rather than celebrating its beauty. It divides. But not only that, the fourth thing that we see here is that the destructive nature of legalism, it stunts our growth in Christ. Right? It, it, it stunts our growth. We stop growing and we start regressing. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, it's always good to be made, made much of for good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, please don't hear what Paul's not saying here. It's, it's good to be passionate about our faith. It is good to be zealous for God, right? It's even okay for people to look up to you. He says it's okay to be respected. It's okay to be well thought of by others, but that is not ultimate, right? The gospel, it's, it is living by faith as followers of Jesus, and that all is about bringing glory to God, amen? That is what it's about, drawing uh, our affection and our attention towards him, who he is and what it is that he has done. But legalism inverts that and it perverts that. Living by law as followers of rules and making it all about you, who you are and what it is that you have done. And what happens then is we've got we to keep up appearances, don't we? We've got to keep up appearances in legalism. It, it leads to us portraying this false self, this facade, if you will, especially when others are watching. Right? Paul says, don't just do this when I'm there with you. Always do it. This should be who you are, not a mask that we wear. It's kind of like in school, one or two of you may have had a tendency, and the teachers in the room already know where I'm going with this. When the teacher's watching you, we're obeying, we're good, obedient little children. And then the second the teacher turns their back to write on the chalkboard, like all of a sudden we like turn into little demon spawn kids, don't we? We're like, we're goofing off, we're talking with our friends. Remember, uh, my friend Todd and I in third grade, we would play Pencil Wars when Miss Kent would turn away, and we had these lids on the desk, so we would lift up our lids, and we'd brace them with the rulers, and then we would shoot pencils and erasers back at each other, right? We'd play Pencil Wars, and then as soon as Miss Kent turned back around, bam! Hi, Miss Kent. We got kept in from recess a few times. But here's the thing, knowing that the, the Romans, they were giving the Jewish people sort of this religious exemption. Remember, we talked about that earlier in the series. 
And so what some of the Christians were doing, Paul would later say in chapter 6, he says they only wanted to make a good showing, appearing more Jewish so that they could avoid persecutions as Christians and, and get grandfathered into that religious exemption, so to speak. All right, so legalism, it leads to living a lie. It leads to portraying this false self, one that is perceived as being good enough. And what that does is it stunts our growth. Our faith regresses, growing to be less and less like Jesus rather than more. And so he closes in verse 20 saying, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. I don't, I don't know what to do with you anymore. And in those words is love. He loves them so much. As frustrated as Paul was right here, he, he loves these people and he wants what is best for them. And so he is going to keep fighting for them, fighting for their faith, fighting for their growth until Christ is formed in you. And this passage, this sermon is nothing more than a plea from a loving pastor. From Paul to those in Galatians, from me to you in hopes that we would see the destructive nature of legalism, of how it destroys our intimacy with God, leading us even to resent God, of how it robs our joy in serving God. It becomes a burden. It becomes an obligation of how it divides the family of God, excluding those who don't follow your set of rules. And how rather than leading us to Christ and forming us in his image, growing to be more like Jesus, it leads us further and further away as we are formed more into the image of a Pharisee than Jesus. Legalism says the cross is not enough. It says that Jesus is not enough, that faith is not enough. And it leads us to living a lie that says we need to do more, that we need to be more in order to be enough for God, to be accepted by God, to be welcomed and included in his family. It leads to us relying on ourselves rather than turning to and trusting in God and what Jesus did for us. And it imposes a burden on you that you were never meant to bear. A burden that is enslaving, that is exhausting, and that will eventually break you. Whereas postmodernism is going to say, go your own way, follow your own rules. Legalism on the other side says, you need to go our way and follow our rules. None of those sound like Jesus, do they? Because Jesus says, I am the way. Follow me. And so I want to close by asking you a couple of questions. And then as we often do, I'm going to give you some time and some space to reflect and to pray and silent reflection. Three questions for you. Number one, what is that burden you are carrying? Not if, but what. What is that burden you're carrying? And, and ask yourself this, like, how are you trying to gain God's attention? How are you trying to earn his love and affection? What is it that you think you need to do to be enough for God, to be accepted by him? What is that burden you are carrying? But not only that, who imposed that burden on you? It may have been a pastor. God, I hope it wasn't me. It may have been a parent. It may have been a friend or family member. Oftentimes, though, I think what we see when we reflect on this is that we've imposed it on ourselves, enslaving ourselves to our own law that we've created ourselves. 
And so I want you to think about who it is that has imposed that burden on you. And then number three, I want you to reflect on how that burden has destroyed your intimacy with God, how it has robbed you of that joy you once felt of serving God. We all had it at one time. How how has it divided the family of God? How has it isolated you? How have you isolated others? And how has it stunted your growth? If you find yourself in one of those seasons, you're like, I just, I'm just not growing anymore. And as you reflect on that, I want you to hear Jesus calling out to you, saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am life. Follow me, come to the cross and lay down that burden that is enslaving you, that is exhausting you. Lay it down on the cross and give it to me because he says, come to me, all you who are lab- labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take off that burden that you are carrying and take my yoke upon you and learn from me as you follow me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That is our desire, isn't it? And so you may not have had but 30 seconds of silence in your entire week or month, and so we're going to give you a couple minutes now as Tim just plays quietly. And so I want to invite you this time to bow your head. Allow the spirit to stir, reflect on these questions, and I'll close this in prayer and lead us into communion. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.